between the devil and the deep blue sea. As the word between uh, enunciates, this is a place that we're talking about this morning. It is a place that people live. It is a place where you, I promise, have found yourself once or twice. It's a place that you might be right now. In fact, it's a place that a lot of us probably are right now. It's a place where we often find ourselves, between the devil and the deep blue sea. It's just a very antiquated way of saying between a rock and a hard place. It's a, it's a real saying from way back when. Between the devil and the deep blue sea. What happens when we're born into this world? Can you imagine if you were abducted and taken to an alien planet? especially as a very young person. You wake up one day, you're in alien territory, you don't know the language, you don't know the customs, you're not familiar with the landscape, you have no idea how you got there, you have no idea what you're doing there, and everything is scary, everything is fresh, everything is new. You have no point of reference. And you may or may not have somebody to help you. Could you imagine how scary that would be? It'd be a very interesting place to find yourself. In all reality, that is exactly what has happened to every single one of us. One day you were not here, and the next day you were. A helpless little baby lying in an incubator or your mother's arms not knowing the language, not knowing the surroundings, not knowing the customs, having no idea. The Bible actually refers to us at a second point in our life, the point not when we're born, but when we are born again, as strangers in a strange land. It's actually the full Hebrew meaning of what Moses named his son. You can imagine his story, how he felt. A stranger in a strange land. It should feel this way to every Christian who has truly been born again. Notice I didn't say saved. I said born again. Now the scripture only uses the term born again twice. We have chosen as Christians to make it interchangeable with the word saved. I want to encourage you this morning. That might be something that you want to study on your own. We'll certainly talk about it sometime. The reason I even bring it up right now is because I don't want you questioning your salvation or anybody else's. I'm talking about being born again. I'm talking about an experience where you wake up one day and you were a certain way the day before and the next day everything has changed. The Bible says two things that don't make sense with each other. It says all throughout the book of Ecclesiastes and in various other places in the Old Testament, that there is no new thing under the sun. No new thing under the sun. It says the wind travels the same circuits it's always traveled. The water falls from heaven. It makes its way into the rivers. The rivers run into the oceans. The water evaporates and it starts all over again. There's no new thought. There's no new thing under the sun. The Bible tells us. Everything is just a rendition of something that's already happened. We know this. We say history repeats itself. 
In Christianity, we say what has been shall be, if we understand that scripture. In the world, we say what goes around comes around and vice versa. There's no new thing under the sun. But in the New Testament, it says Jesus makes all things new. These two things don't make sense. There either is no new thing or there is a lot of new things. The answer to the riddle is that no, there is no new thing and, and things don't change. And there's nothing in your situation that you can really pray for on a, uh, on a daily basis or at, at, almost at any given point. Uh, we make a mistake as Christians by trying to pray and trying to seek and trying to find a way to change uh, our situation or change people that we're involved with or involved in our situation. It can be very frustrating because it's very hard to change somebody. It's very hard to change something that's already been established. But the word of God says, if you don't worry so much about changing everything around you, but you worry about letting God change you, if you change in the midst of your situation, everything changes. So when you wake up, I went to bed in the same house that I was born again inside. And when I woke up in that house slash apartment, I walked into the kitchen and it was the same kitchen, but it was totally different. It was the same living room, but it was totally different. It was the same coffee table. But if I'm being honest, instead of opening up uh, a doobie, if you will, I opened up the word of God that day. Same coffee table, but a little bit different. Same bedroom. But when I woke up, it was a little bit different. Everything had changed. Everything changed. I had the same roommate, but completely different at the same time. So to the demise of every true five-point Calvinist and every tulip-inspired theologian, from the day that you open your eyes and take your first breath, you are a person that makes choices. You are a person that makes decisions. The only thing that's predestined in this life is God's plan for this world. Your destiny was placed on a timeline before you were ever born, but it was subsequent to the choices that he already knew you were going to make. But you still have to make those choices. How do I know that? Because he says he's only predestined those who he's foreknown. He foreknows first. He looks into your future first. He sees what you're going to decide first. Pharaoh's never going to serve me. Then I'm going to harden his heart and I'm going to use him in a different way. So God will do that, but it's subsequent to the choices you make. If you feel like the Holy Spirit made you wear that dress this morning, well, first of all, young man, you shouldn't be wearing dresses. No, I'm kidding. Uh, it's, it wasn't the Holy Spirit that made you do that. The color of your shirt, I'm not saying he'll never tell you to wear a certain color shirt because there might be a reason, but more often than not, I had a lot of trouble deciding what to wear this morning. I would have been nice if God would have said, you don't make choices, I make them, and he just picked it out for me. If I could have just stood in front of my closet and the Holy Spirit just dressed me, and like, Awesome. And then if you made fun of my clothes, I'd be like, whoo, one unforgivable sin. And you are dangling, my friend. You're walking close to that line because this is Holy Spirit inspired. OK. But that doesn't happen. We make decisions. And because we make decisions, we live constantly between the devil and the deep blue sea. Jesus is talking in Matthew chapter 11, and he says, whereunto shall I liken this generation? 
You're like children sitting in the market calling to their fellows and saying, now understand this parable. This is God speaking to us, saying, or God's people rather, speaking to other people. We have piped unto you and you have not danced. We have mourned unto you and you have not lamented. John came in a certain way, neither eating nor drinking. He's speaking of John the Baptist, Yochanan the Immerser, if you're speaking in Hebrew terms, who stood in the Jordan River and ate locusts and wild honey. That's a locust bean, by the way, not the, not the insect. And wild honey. Never had a drop of wine. His mom, as pregnant women should do, didn't drink while she was pregnant, not even a drop. So nothing had ever touched him. The Bible says his mom was filled with the Holy Ghost while she was pregnant so that John could receive the Holy Ghost while he was in the womb. That's crazy. So was John predestined? Well, according to the scripture, God would look into the future and see. And of course, there are certain people, Jesus, for sure, you can make a case for John. So John was called from the womb. And Jesus said, so we tried it that way. And you say he has a devil. So verse 19, the son of man, Jesus came both eating and drinking. I am so glad that God called us to be like Jesus and not like John. Because man, wow. Came both eating and drinking. They say, behold, a man who is gluttonous and a wine bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. So they found a way not to listen to him either. In other words, they're saying, well, we are so holy. We are so law abiding. We would never listen to a man who drinks this much wine and eats this much food and is friends with sinners and publicans. And John says, well, I am more holy than you. Well, you're too holy. I'm going to listen to you either. And look at your outfit. He wore stuff. Anyway, so they didn't want it either way. This is a this is a, an example of our mentality as we try to make our way in this world, living between the devil and the deep blue sea. There's always one way or the other way. We're always caught in the middle. We're constantly between a rock and a hard place. The series title of which this is the first message is called Ripples. And I want to talk to you this morning about the effects that your choices have, not only on you, but on everything around you. And this is not going to be motivational style. This is going to be Bible style. This is going to be Jesus style. This is going to be Holy Ghost style. There are ripples and there are consequences. There are things that happen with every choice that you make, every decision that is yours. The good news is there is also a way to put a stop or to staunch the ripples of certain decisions that may have been the wrong decisions. We're going to get there this morning as well. Joel chapter 3 verse 14 says, Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. Everybody say decision. We have decisions to make each and every day. We're constantly caught up between a rock and a hard place. The devil or the deep blue sea. 
Abraham had a decision to make once upon a time. You can flip to Genesis chapter 22 if you're following along or you can just follow on the screen. By the way, I know a lot of pastors and ministries are very concerned that you bring your Bible to service uh, regardless of the fact that that it's on the screen because it's your sword, it's the word of God, it's something you should always have with you. And I am down with that. I would love for you to bring your Bible. But if you're anything like me, and somewhere between 70 to 80% of the time, you don't leave with stuff that you brought somewhere, I would rather you have your Bible at home, because we're going to show you the scriptures on the screen, and I'd like for you to be able to go home and read it. And if you do leave it here, you can see me later for a small charge. We'll give it back to you. Abraham is making a decision in Genesis chapter 22. You all know the story. It's called the binding of Isaac. God comes to Abraham at the beginning of Genesis 22 and he says, I have something for you, Abraham. I have uh, I have something I need you to do. And of course, Abraham is all ears right away. But when God uh, tells him the decision that he has to make, he slams Abraham down right in between the devil and the deep blue sea. Because it'd be very easy for Abraham to turn around and say that he was piped to or that he was mourned to and that he doesn't want to respond either way. God would never tell me to do such a thing. But sometimes when God speaks, you understand God's speaking to you, whether you really want to do it or not. You saw an example of that this morning as Trent made his way up here. It was very, very obvious that there's a big portion of Trent that didn't want to come up here. And that's normal. But he made a decision. He had a between the devil and deep blue sea thing, and you got to witness it. It happens to us all the time. I want to give you some insight with Abraham's story because it's probably the most prevalent and well-known story of being truly caught between a rock and a hard place and having a difficult decision to make. First of all, Abraham knew right away he told his servants when they asked where he was going. He said, me and the boy go to worship and we'll return to you. He didn't know how that was going to happen. But he knew that God had promised him an heir and as many heirs as the stars in the sky and the sands of the sea. So he knew that one way or another he was coming back with his son whether that was resurrection or whatever the case may be. There's some symbolism going on. I want to share with you real quick. Abraham is the father, right, in this situation. Abraham is called the father of our faith. In the book of Hebrews, he was way too old to have a son. So when he had a son, it was a miraculous birth and it was his only son. He had a son previously, but not with his bride, not with his wife. That's for a different story and a different symbolism. But his only heir was Isaac, and it was a miraculous birth. This places him in the position of being symbolized as God the Father. Does that make sense to you? As he takes his only son and walks him up the mountain with wood on his back to be sacrificed. You see the symbolism? Jesus, God's only son, walking up Golgotha with the wood on his back to be sacrificed. One interesting thing out of it, well, there's many interesting things, but the scripture we're going to focus on is verse number six, which says, Abraham took the word of the burnt, uh, the wood, I'm sorry, of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac, his son. He took the fire in his hand. Everybody say the fire and a knife. Everybody say a knife. And they went both of them together. Are you ready for the word this morning? Ready? This is a runway, long runway. Getting ready to take off. This is for you. This is for me. This is from God, and I believe this is life-changing stuff. Very interesting 
that Abraham took the fire in his hand and the knife, but it says he laid the wood on his son's back. When you go into the word of God and you begin to break things down, uh, God is not arbitrary with any of his scriptures. Amen. Amen. God is good, right? Now, I just want y'all to be I want I'm, I'm fired up. I want you to be fired up with me. I want you to preach to me. I'm going to preach to you. You Preach back to me. All right. You say amen and awesome and all kinds of not for me, but for the word. Just forget it. OK. Genesis 22 here. We're in verse six. When he takes the whatever you said, when he takes the, the knife, it wasn't loud enough, but I liked it. When you look that word up in Hebrew or rather when you go to the New Testament and it says to take upon the armor of God daily, put on the armor of the Lord. It calls the word of God, your Bible, your sword. Yes. When you look that word up in Greek, it is a short sword. It is a sword with a short blade. So it's more like a dagger or a knife. So when Abraham here is taking the knife, the knife represents the word of God. Everybody say the word. word. What does the fire represent? Come on. There you go. I don't even have to give you scripture for that. Represents the Holy Spirit. We know that. Why? Because when the Holy Ghost came upon them on the day of Pentecost, they saw tongues like as a fire. When the spirit came down for Solomon blessing the temple, it came down like fire. Jesus said, I'm going to baptize you with the Holy Ghost and fire. So when the Holy Spirit comes down, it comes down like fire, right? The word of God is called the water of the word of God. The anointing of the spirit is related to the oil. And this is not part of the message. This is something on the side for free. So what happens when you take something and you cover it with water and then you cover it with oil? The oil is on the outside. The water's underneath the oil. If you light that thing on fire, what doesn't get hurt? Whatever is covered by the water. In other words, if you fill up a tank with water and then you fill it up with oil and then you light it on fire, it just lights the top. It sets the whole thing on fire, but it doesn't bother the water. That's why it's important for you to be in the word of God when you're praying for the anointing of God. Because when the Holy Ghost falls like fire, you want to be doused in the water of the word. So that fire is just on the outside for everybody to see. But it's not burning you up. Do I know that for sure? Study the four types of ground. I'm pretty sure one of them got burned up. Knife is the word. The fire is the Holy Spirit. Here's the thing. God, your father. It's very important. God, your father. Can impart to you his word. Abraham had the knife. In fact, the Bible says, if you don't allow God to reveal the word to you, it's just going to be a stumbling block. You're going to wind up on A&E or the Discovery Channel talking about God knows what and Jesus had many wives and this is over here and that's over there. And you're going to use scripture and look really silly because the Bible says that's what happens when you lean on your own understanding of God's word. You with me? And of course, it is solely and purely up to God to impart the spirit unto you. You can't do that yourself. So God will carry the knife and God will carry the fire. This is what God's going to do. If you ask him, if you seek him, if you live for him. When you live for him, you constantly live between the devil and the deep blue sea. And he will impart to you his word and he will impart to you his spirit. But he will never carry the wood for you. He is going to lay that squarely on your back. Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Take up his cross daily and follow me. 
You've got the word and you've got the spirit. Praise God. That's two out of three. But we serve a God who is all three at once. And he wants all three in you. He wants the word. He wants the spirit. And he wants the cross or the sacrifice, if you will. He'll give you his word and he'll impart to you his spirit. But young man, young woman, old man, uh, old woman, I have to tell you the truth this morning. He is never, ever, ever going to carry that cross for you. He's given you the tools and he says, take up your cross daily and follow me. So what happens with us American Christians? What happens in the modern day church? How do we carry our cross daily? How do we follow him? We think of the cross and we think of it in wrong terms more often than not. I think I can prove this to you right here with this scripture. You tell me. We look at the cross as some sort of tool of victory. I'm about to really offend some people. I don't mean to be offensive and I'll explain myself after I'm done being offensive. Can you imagine if people walked around this earth uh, with necklaces on and dangling from the necklace was an electric chair? Would that be weird? Be kind of weird. Dangling from the necklace is a guillotine. Dangling from the necklace is some type of huge instrument of death. We look at the cross and we put the crosses on our churches and we put the crosses on our stuff and we put the cross around our neck. And there are some beautiful crosses of jewelry. I'm not telling you not to wear them. I'm just telling you the point is the cross is not primarily a symbol of victory. The cross is primarily a symbol of death. In fact, the cross didn't bring you an ounce of victory. Jesus gained victory over the cross. The cross was an instrument of death. The cross was an instrument of crucifixion. It was a malicious type of death. Not to say there's not a single scripture that paints the cross in a positive light. But I want to tell you here in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, when Jesus said, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. We think about after he was resurrected, how cool it would be that we take our crosses because Jesus was laid in the ground and resurrected three days later. And we think about a resurrected Jesus talking to people about carrying their cross, but he hadn't been resurrected. He hadn't been crucified. The cross was not a Christian symbol in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. The cross meant nothing to anybody other than this is how people die. So when he said, take your cross and follow me daily, nobody knew that he was going to gain victory over that thing. All they knew is that was an instrument of death. And what God is asking us to do is to die daily to our flesh. Put that bad boy up there and get crucified. If you can leave that behind and follow me, I'll give you the word and I'll give you the spirit, but I will not carry the load. Further proof? Come unto me, all of you that are heavy burdened. All of you that need rest. And what? I'll take your yoke for you? Nope. He says, here, take my yoke. For the burden is easy. His yoke is light. And I'm thankful for that. But in modern day Christianity, we want no yokes. We want no burdens. We want no crosses. At least none with blood on them. Can I please get a shiny new one that was there after he was resurrected? I don't want the old bloody one stained with the payment for sin. 
whose wages are death. So what do we do in modern day Christianity? Instead of carrying our crosses, we decorate our crosses. We make them beautiful and pretty. We put flowers on them. We make them pretty and beautiful. One of the uh, traditions at a church that I used to minister at was they put a, a cross up front. You've all probably seen it. And I'm not saying they shouldn't do it. I just want you to hear my, my heart. And it's got chicken wire wrapped around it. And everybody that comes in gets a flower, some kind of flower put in their hand. And then during the, it's usually during Easter and everybody comes up at some point and puts their flower on the chicken wire. By the time you're done, you have this really awesome, beautiful looking cross made out of flowers. And it is very nice. And I'd even be okay with that if that church had an ounce of emphasis on taking up the cross as an instrument of death and laying themselves bare on it and taking it up daily and following God. You know who you are, all of you? You are Peter. I am Peter. We are, all of us, this disciple. Not the Pope. The Catholics got it wrong. I hate to break it to you. There was a story of a man that came and knelt down to Peter, and Peter said, whoa, 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 whoa. Up on your feet, guy. We're, saying, we're the same. We're equal. Nobody kneeled before Peter. He didn't offer them a ring to kiss. He said, we're equal. And he was married. And he was not the vicar of Christ. He said, crucify me upside down because I'm unworthy. The reason that Catholics get it wrong and the reason that I even brought that up is because of what Jesus says to Peter when Peter has the guts to speak up and declare the most relevant revelation of his time. When Jesus walks up to his disciples and he asks them and he says, who do men say that I am? And they say, well, some men are saying that you're a megachurch. Oh, interesting. Well, some men are saying that you're a new Cadillac and a three story house. Oh, interesting. Well, some men are saying that you are the sure way to success and blessing. That's just modern day terms. That's not what the Bible actually says. He said, some say you're Jeremiah. Some say you're this guy. Some say you're John the Baptist. And then Peter speaks up the way that you speak up and say, no, no, no. You are the Savior, the Messiah, the Son of God, God in the flesh. And Jesus says, Peter, you know what? Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father from heaven. That's a revelation from heaven. And upon this rock shall I build my church. And what the Catholics thought he said was that he was building his church upon Peter. But thank God in heaven that that didn't happen. What he was saying is I'm building my church upon this revelation that I am the only son of God, that I am the way, the truth and the life that no man comes to the father, but through me. So when you find yourself stuck between a rock and a hard place, between Muhammad and Buddha, between Jesus and Krishna, between tolerance and relevance, between uh, offending people and acquiescing to your current culture and society. When you find yourself in between that devil and that deep blue sea, Peter gave you the answer. I don't mean to offend you, sir. I don't mean to upset you, ma'am. I'm not trying to ruin your day, but there's only one way. And Jesus said, well, upon this revelation, upon this rock, Will I build my church? At some point in the middle of a storm, everybody say, my life. Everybody's scared and they look out at the waves and the fog and the mist and the rain and they see somebody walking. 
and they're not sure. Is it a ghost? Is it an apparition? Peter recognizes. It's Jesus. And he puts him between a different devil and a literal deep blue sea. And he says, step out of the boat. Step out of the boat. And that's his calling to each and every one of us. First, you've got to realize, you've got to make decision number one. He is the son of God. He is the only way to the father. But don't think for a second after you've made that decision that you're done. He's not that boring. He's got more stuff for you to do. So then he walks up to you, surrounded by your friends and fellow disciples. And he says, I'm going to ask you to step out of the boat. I'm going to ask you, Trent, to step out of the boat. I'm going to ask you, church, to step out of the boat and receive what's going on. I'm going to ask you, church, to step out and do something a little bit different. God is standing in heaven and he's speaking to us, the Bible says, through his dear son. And he's asking each and every one of us, because we are all Peter, we have all gained that revelation that he is the son of God. He is saying, will you now step out of the boat? I thank you for making the first decision and getting in the boat. Now I'm going to ask you to step out of the boat, not on the dry land, but on the raging sea. So Peter says, yes. And he steps out of the boat. The Bible says when crowds of men are gathered in the book of Revelation, it refers to it in heaven and other books. It refers to it. God calls it a sea. A sea, a crowd in the Bible is referred to as a sea, a sea of men, a sea. You have. Satan, the Bible says, in the belly of the earth. You have. Jehovah, Yahweh, Jesus, you could say somewhere above, relative term. And in the middle, you have men and women. You live on this planet, you are constantly caught between the devil and the deep blue sea. And Jesus says, I want you to step out of the boat and I want you to walk on the sea. I want you to walk into that sea of men. And I want you to go fishing. And every decision that we make. Everything that we do. As we're walking upon that sea of men. Causes ripples in the water. Just like tossing a pebble. We step out onto this sea. And we make decisions. Each and every day. Whether we are going to speak or whether we are going to be silent. And silence, my friend, is deadly. Silence is deadly. And we go throughout our lives and we commit mass homicide. By not speaking the truth as we walk upon and through this sea of men. If you fail to open your mouth sometimes, if you're trying to make a decision between being heard and being silent, silence will volunteer. It's the easiest way to go. Preach the gospel to everybody and sometimes use words. That's that's a nice saying and it's a cute cliche and it even works sometimes. But I'm telling you right now that God gave us a great commission 
to go into this world, to go into all nations and teach, to speak the word of God. He thought so much about the power of words that he decided to speak everything into existence. I don't think he did that just so we could be silent. We make decisions. The Bible says that life and death are in the power of the tongue. So it's not just whether you decide to speak or not, but it's what you decide to say. Do you forgive or do you condemn? Boom, strike the water, ripples. Do you have mercy or do you have bitterness? Boom, strike the water, ripples. It's going to affect everything around you. Are you going to believe or are you not going to believe today? Boom, strike the water, ripples. Because you're walking on a sea of men and they're seeing what you do and they're hearing what you say and life and death is in the power of your tongue. Every step that you take causes ripples. Every word that you say causes ripples. You strike the water on a daily basis, but so often we don't think about it. God has called me to do this thing, but I don't have the resources. Boom, strike the water, ripples. You're never going to do it because you've just caused waves. Guess how sound travels? And it's going to reverberate and it's going to come back to you. And the devil's going to use your own words. You can't do it. How do I know he's going to use your own words? Because God told Adam, don't eat the fruit. Adam told Eve, don't even look at it or touch it. So what did the devil do? He used Adam's own words, which weren't God's words. Well, you've already touched the fruit. You might as well eat it. Nope, you could touch it and throw it away. But he used, you see what I'm saying? So you speak something that's not of God and it's going to reverberate like waves. It's going to come back at you. Waves get stronger at the point where ripples meet. So you surround yourself with like-minded people. You speak negative, boom, ripples. They speak negative, boom, ripples, and they meet and they multiply. And then positive people who are surrounded by you will begin to speak negative. Hopefully you're the positive person that's standing in the way. If you're to stand, if you're to throw a, it doesn't matter how big the rock is, right over top of the Hoover Dam, those ripples can only go as far. That's where that dam is, is standing. And then they stop because they hit something solid and they can't go past it. He's calling you out of the boat. He's calling you to step in the water because you're surrounded by people that are causing ripples and not all the ripples are reverberating with the sound of God's voice. And sometimes it takes me and you to stand in the water, to stand in the midst and take those ripples on and don't let them go any further and stand upon the revelation that you know who God is that you know who Jesus Christ is in your life. When somebody has condemned themselves to death, can you be the one that stands in the lake, that stands in the ocean, that doesn't let the ripples pass, and that reverberates and says, no, you are not going to die, but you are going to live in Jesus' name? When they have condemned the relationships, can you say God is the great healer? When they say God doesn't exist, can you say God is the only thing? Will you stand in the water? Will you block the ripples? Will you cause a better effect? I remember I had a teacher in high school who had a poster in her room. And it said, stand for what is right, even if you're standing alone. But when I did that, she kicked me out of her class. <laughs> you are a hypocrite, miss. Really did happen. <laughs> but the saying is still true. Stand for what is right, even if you're standing alone. Will you be Peter? Amen. Will you step out of the boat? 
Are you willing to live a life between the devil and the deep blue sea? Paul was. Paul said, I'm caught betwixt two things. His exact words. He said, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. He said, you know what? It's better for me if I go. And I feel him on that. I feel him on that. My wife and I were talking just the other day. And we agreed that it would be advantageous if we just woke up in heaven tomorrow. For us, selfish. But Paul said, no, you're right. That is advantageous. That would be a gain. It's better for me if I go. But it's better for others if I stay. Why is it better? Because Paul was one that stood in the way. Paul was a resistor. Paul was willing to stand in the Jordan River and take on the waves for other people and reverberate with the sound of God's voice. Paul was willing to live between the devil and the deep blue sea, take up his cross daily, strike the water on his own and send out waves of God's words, God's desire, and hopefully God's presence.